Congregation, before we will, Lord willing, begin with our catechism preaching for the evening services beginning next week. I want to have one more standalone message from the book of Romans, and it is Romans chapter 10, and I have chosen this passage for two reasons. First of all, this morning we talked about two offices in the Church of Jesus Christ, the office of elder and the office of deacon. I thought it just good to add, at least in a sense, the third office, which is the office of minister or preacher, however you want to call it. And the second reason is I have read and my eye fell on the fact that this evening uh, we are collecting funds for Come Over and Help, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, since I have the privilege to be on the board for Come Over and Help and also find this a very, very good organization, I thought I connect the preaching about the preacher with preaching about missions. And therefore, these two reasons, we will have Romans chapter 12, uh, Romans chapter 10 uh, this evening. But before we turn to that passage, let me give you a few introductory remarks to the book of Romans. The Apostle Paul wrote his letter to the Romans around 57 AD. It should be added that Paul didn't plant the church in Rome, and nevertheless, he still had longed to become acquainted with the brothers and sisters of that church. He had often tried to visit them, but it never worked out. But now his long-standing wish seems to be fulfilled as he planned to travel westwards uh, to Spain, and on his way he wanted to visit the brothers and sisters in Rome. So his long-standing wish was about to be fulfilled. And since they had never met Paul before, it was essential for him to present his apostolic credentials in order to prove to them that he was a real apostle. For us, this is all very hard to imagine because we live in the day of documents and of printers and of the internet, and one can easily find out if a preacher is for real, if he's really on the list of preachers. It was different that that day. A man had to prove himself that he was a true apostle, and rightly so the churches were very careful not to let any wolves into their pulpits, and this should be very true, of course, for our churches um, today. And also there were slanderous reports about Paul and the other apostles, and so he had to defend both his apostleship, but more importantly, he also had to defend his gospel. And therefore, Paul's letter to the Romans is such a defense. He lays bare open the gospel, his gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ in all its depth for the Italians or for the Romans to see that he is a real apostle um, of Jesus Christ. Um, he lays not only open the doctrine of the gospel, but also all implications for the sanctification of believers that come with the gospel. So this is not just a, a nice letter, but this is a, as J. Adams calls it, a, it's more than a letter. It's a deep or sophisticated theological treatise where the gospel is being explained from all directions, in all depth, and Paul presents the gospel of Jesus Christ and he defends it from all sides. Now, to understand our passage, which we're going to uh, read in a minute, we need to see what place our passage has within the book of Romans. We have already talked about this, that context of a passage is very, very important. 
uh, because a text without a context is a pretext. So let us have a very short overview of Romans. Chapters 1 and 3 explain to us the fallen state of an unbeliever and his need for the gospel, for his need for redemption in Jesus Christ. Then the second part of Romans chapter 3 all the way to chapter 8, this serves as the recipe, the medicine, the logical answer to man's total depravity. And we learn God's remedy, which is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then from chapter 9, Paul deals with the role of the Jews in the New Testament and their seeking, their false seeking of righteousness by the works of the law rather than faith. You see, the Jews built on a wrong foundation in trying to earn righteousness by accomplishment, earning righteousness by the keeping of the law, earning righteousness by good works. And uh, add to all this evil that in their folly, they were very prideful. They thought themselves as superior to the Gentiles. You can almost hear them when they hear the gospel uh, from the Gentiles and the Jews say, well, that's, that's really cute and simplistic, but you're utterly wrong. You have to understand the law. You don't. And then comes our passage referring To the Jews, he writes in verses 1 through 17. We will read verses 1 through 17, although only the last few verses are our passage, but we need the context. So he refers to the Jews when he writes, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God... And seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And here comes our passage. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written, 
How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. As for the reading of God's holy word, may the Lord add his blessing to the preaching thereof. What a heartfelt expression of care, compassion, and sympathy. What a groaning from the depths of Paul's heavily burdened heart. We sometimes tend to see Paul as somewhat of a master apostle whose writings in the Word of God are sometimes hard to understand, as the Apostle Peter put it. But here we see Paul the missionary, Paul the pastor, with his heavily burdened heart crying out in grief. And the first question we have to ask is, about whom is Paul crying? That is the first question we ask. Now, at first sight, it looks like Paul is crying or referring to the Jews. Since the chapters beforehand, he cries about Israel indeed. And while that is true, we must not miss the fact that in our chapter 10 he develops the theme of Israel, of the Jews rejecting the gospel and therefore the Gentiles receiving it. And then, and only then, he comes to the conclusion of chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction, he says, between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul explains the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it is the same gospel for all, without distinction, whether Jew or Gentile. It is one gospel for all. We must also consider to whom he wrote this letter. The church in Rome was predominantly a Gentile church. Paul was about to come and visit them. Why should he lament the state of the Jews to a church that was predominantly Gentile? No, he's explaining the gospel to them in order to prove himself a real apostle and a faithful preacher. And this gospel, he says, is the same for all tribes, for all languages, for all peoples, for all nations. It is a gospel for all. You see, you have to understand that before that, in the, during the Old Testament administration, it was pretty clear to everyone that the Jews were God's people, at least outwardly. They were God's covenant people. And suddenly there are men who are preaching that the gospel is also for the Gentiles, that Jesus Christ has also come for the Gentiles, and the Gentiles, of which we are a part, they would have asked, what? It is for us now too? May we hope now too? And Paul says, of course. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is my gospel. That is the gospel that I'm preaching. That it doesn't matter whether you are a Jew or a Gentile. There's only one Jesus Christ, and it is one Jesus Christ for all, for all those 
who believe. And this gospel is not a gospel of works righteousness, but a gospel of free grace through faith in Christ. Because a gospel of works righteousness is not a gospel, is not an evangelion, is not good news at all, but horrible news. In writing about this glorious gospel of grace, we can almost see Paul getting excited, looking towards heaven from where Christ will one day come and finally take his people home. Oh, how Paul loves this gospel. How he gets excited by this gospel. He never gets tired of it. My dear friends, how is it with us? Are we still getting excited by this gospel? Does the fact that Jesus Christ died for your sins still move you? Have you ever realized the Lord Jesus Christ saying in the garden, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death? Have you ever paused? Have you ever realized this little verse? The Lord Jesus Christ, the King of heaven and earth, his soul was sorrowful even to death. Because of his sovereign love for you. On the cross he cried out in agony. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? For our sakes, for your sakes and for my sake. Have you ever considered, have you ever passed from your busy life? And considered what it meant for the perfect and holy father to turn away his face, his favor from his beloved son. To punish him for your sins. Fathers, mothers, can you even begin to imagine what this meant for the perfect, pure, and holy Father in heaven? Don't ever allow your heart to become dull towards this glorious gospel. This gospel, beloved, is the same gospel for all nations, for Jews, for Greeks, For Americans, for Europeans, for black and white, it is equality in the biblical sense. Every Christian is saved by the same Christ, by the same atonement, through the same gospel. That is equality. It is the gospel of verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It is not a gospel of works, because a gospel of works would be no gospel at all. No good news, but bad news. Neither Jew nor Gentile could ever get saved in the gospel of works by the works of his own flesh. I know what some say or think, especially maybe some younger people. They might think, oh yes, we know it all. We have heard it a thousand times But, dear friend, have you really grasped it? Do you really own it? Have you bowed your knees before the Lord Jesus Christ? Or do you just say, boring? I hear it all the time, boring. If you say that or think that, I'm worried for your soul. Bow your knees before the Lord Jesus Christ and beg for God to open your heart through his Holy Spirit. Have you understood the gospel of Jesus Christ? 
You see, the idea of works righteousness is not only a Jewish concept. It's not even a Roman Catholic concept alone. It's even present in Protestant churches. It's even present in Reformed churches. It's even present in very conservative Reformed churches. How many Christians, hand on heart, after having committed a particular sin, expect God to wait right around the next corner with a baseball bat, ready to knock them right over the head? for the sin that they've just committed. How many Christians hardly ever find assurance of their salvation because they're constantly looking at their own evil hearts, at their own poor and pathetic performance, and not to the one who has paid the price for us all. Beloved, we need to call on him who cried out on the cross, it is finished. He is our refuge. He is our hope. He is our mighty fortress. He is our salvation. Christ, Christ, and Christ alone. There is no other man given to men by whom they shall be saved. Oh, how excited Paul gets by just writing about this gospel. But suddenly his facial expression changes. Deep sorrow and grief arise. The millions and millions of lost come to his mind. So many haven't heard the gospel of grace yet. So many still unreconciled with God. So many still destined for eternal condemnation. And Paul asks, how can they be saved? That's his question in verse 14. He picks up verse 13 that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's wonderful news, that everyone who sh calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But now he starts a wonderful chain of reasoning, asking if that is true, that everyone who calls, I should rephrase that, since this is true, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed. So he's going from effect to cause. He first asks, yes, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, but if a person doesn't believe, they cannot call on the name of the Lord. Nobody can call on the name of the Lord who first doesn't believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that Paul just has explained to us. And now we have to ask, what does believe really mean? The Reformers, in a very biblical way, differentiated the three stages of belief for us. The first stage, or I shall say, the lowest stage of belief, is, uh, was designated by the Latin word notitia. And notitia or notitia, however, which school of pronunciation you belong to, means just knowledge. Just plain knowledge, plain knowledge of the gospel. Everyone who has ever heard the gospel has notitia. He has the plain knowledge of the gospel. If a person drives by a billboard and the gospel is written on it, he might be as much of an enemy of Christ as he might be, but he still has read the gospel and now he knows it. And we ask, does this first stage of faith make him a believer? And we loudly say no, because the demons know too and they tremble. 
Just to know the gospel doesn't save anyone, of course. So we have a second stage of faith. A census or assent. Not only knowing the facts of the gospel, but also believing that they are true. So this is somebody who knows the gospel, somebody who knows about the Bible and some of its content and agrees. Is this enough? And it almost pains me to say, no, it is not. It is not enough to just agree to the gospel. A person could say, agree that it is true. I still want to go my own ways. Is this person saved? I agree that it is true, but I'm not building my hope on Jesus Christ. Is this person saved? No. But so often in our circles, we act as if it was enough. We act as if checking the boxes is enough. We examine you on the catechism, and if you pass, you're at the Lord's table. Checking the boxes, passing the exam is not enough. Because there's a third stage, and it is called fiducia. It means not only knowing the gospel of Jesus Christ, not only believing that it is true, but being rooted and grounded in this gospel, building all of one's hope on Jesus Christ. This is what belief means in our text. This is a person that doesn't just know. This is a person that doesn't just assent. This is a person who experientially throws himself on Jesus Christ. Who knows what a wretch he is. He knows that he has no hope. He knows that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not merely an intellectual exercise, but is throwing yourself on the ground before Jesus Christ, pleading for forgiveness. This is the saving faith that Paul is talking about. A faith that is rooted and grounded in Christ and nothing but Jesus Christ. True faith doesn't look to oneself for hope, but to the cross of Jesus Christ. It is a life that is completely built on the rock Jesus Christ. That is true and saving faith. That is Belief. Are you a believer? Have you built your hope on Jesus Christ and Him alone? I'm not asking whether you come to church. I'm not asking whether you agree to the three forms of unity. I'm not asking whether you're an upright member of society. I'm asking you whether you are in Jesus Christ. Whether He is your only hope in life and death whether he is your surety for eternal life, whether he is your forgiveness and your reconciliation with God. Now, after having dealt with the question of true faith, Paul goes on asking, how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? So he is moving forward from the, from the cause to the root of the problem. Yeah, they should call on the Lord, but how shall they call if they don't believe? How shall they believe in whom they have never heard? 
It is self-evident that nobody can believe the gospel who has never heard the gospel. This saving faith has to be preached to all nations, to all tribes, to all tongues. This faith has to be spread into the whole world. People don't get saved apart from the Word of God. There is no way to be saved apart from even knowing or hearing the gospel. Well, nature, or if you want to call it in a theological way, a natural revelation or general revelation can show us that God is. Our conscience can show us that we are guilty before this God. But one thing, neither nature nor our conscience can tell us how we can be reconciled with this God. How we can receive forgiveness. How our loud and unquiet and restless souls can be calmed. Our souls are restless, says Augustine, until they find rest in thee. How shall this world hear the gospel? How shall my countrymen hear the gospel? How shall your forefathers' uh, descendants in the Netherlands hear the gospel? How shall the Africans hear the gospel? How shall the Turks hear the gospel if there is no hearing of the gospel? And then comes the crescendo, the point where it all starts, the root of the problem, the preacher. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? Can you imagine those who preach the good news in Paul's day? who walked miles and miles and miles every day to preach the gospel. I don't think they had beautiful feet. I think their feet were dirty and probably smelly. But in God's eyes, they were beautiful because they carried the message of his beloved son, Jesus Christ, the gospel of his son. Now Paul comes to the point, like a ship arrives in a harbor. It is the logical conclusion of his argument. That's the goal of his questions, the goal of his chain of reasoning, the preacher. The Greek word that is used here for preaching or preacher, caruso, means the formal public proclamation of the Word of God. The formal public proclamation of the Word of God. Well, this doesn't mean that uh, Christians who are not formal preachers or ordained preachers, that they cannot spread the gospel. Of course they can. It just means that the primary means by which God has instituted the spread of the gospel is his appointed preachers. Paul is not calling for parachurch organizations which do their thing outside of the church. Paul is not calling for drama or actors for worship services in order to make the gospel more entertaining. Paul is not calling for even a user-friendly gospel, which is easier to accept for the so-called modern or postmodern man. Paul is calling for preachers of the gospel with guts and heart who preach the gospel without fear to the ends of the earth. Not pulpit ornaments but men of God who preach the whole counsel of God to the ends of the earth. The preacher is a herald. 
He is an ambassador. He is God's very mouthpiece to convey a message from God himself who has commissioned him to deliver it. If you ask me today, what is the primary means that God uses to build the church in this world? I wouldn't have to think more than a second. It is the preaching of this gospel in the context of a Bible-believing church. We have nothing else to offer. We don't need anything else to offer. It is not by making relationships. It's not through political campaigns. It's not through social engagement. It is the preaching of the gospel by God's appointed men. And while all these other things might have their place and their time in the kingdom of Christ, it is primarily the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ with all its implications for the people of God, how we should build the church. And that's the way how God appointed himself, the primary means how people come to faith through the preaching of God's word. And we should not try to be smarter than God. Faith comes by hearing, says Paul in verse 17. And we know from our passage that hearing comes from the preaching of the word of God. But now the question, who can preach? As we read in verse 15, preachers must be sent, and they must be sent by Christ through his church. I'm getting very uneasy when I see men just taking the office of preacher without being sent, without being ordained, without being commissioned. And they take a Bible and they start preaching. Preachers must be sent. We have talked about this this morning. An office is given by Christ. It must not, it cannot be taken. It must be given by Christ through his church. The church recognizes God's appointed preachers and she sends them to the ends of the earth. This is what Paul seeks to tell the church in Rome. This is what the Lord tells us here today at Walker. The world needs to hear the gospel, whatever the cost for the church. We are the church. We have to send out. We have to care. We have to pray and we have to pay. Plenty of churches, beloved, plenty of churches in our own federation right now don't have a pastor. They're hurting. They have no herald of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Also, there's a world out there that needs missionaries. And therefore, we need preachers. And these preachers can only be found out, found, elected, and equipped by the church of Jesus Christ. They can only be sent out by the church of Jesus Christ. And they must be cared for and financed and prayed for by the church of Jesus Christ. It is not the church's task to erect impressive church buildings or to have big fat bank accounts. That's not what we call to do, but the Great Commission is what we call to do. What does this mean for us tonight? What is pastor getting at? Are there men in our congregation who might be called to the gospel ministry? who are just afraid to bring it up because people would think they are somewhat crazy? 
Do we have men in our congregation? Even young men who already feel a burden to preach the gospel that is growing in them. Look for them. Find them so we can disciple them. And maybe if God wills, they become ministers of the gospel and to preach the word with much power and boldness. Do you have your eyes open for such men? I have the suspicion in our federation that is not very popular. Maybe it's being considered uh, kind of uh, um, prideful to think that somebody is called for the gospel ministry. There must be a reason why we have so many vacancies. And what about missions? Do we care? Do we really care about missions? Do we have a heart for missions? I I tend to think so from what I see. Just as a reminder, we have a young man and his family from Turkey among us who are getting ready to go back to Turkey soon. We need to send them. We need to care for them. We need to pray for them. We need to help them raise support for the task before them. Get to know them. Pray for them and with them. Ask them how you can help them. The Turks need the gospel as well. The world, beloved, needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And therefore, it is the church who must educate, who must identify first, then educate and send preachers to the ends of the earth to preach the whole counsel of God to all nations, to all tribes, and to all tongues. In order for the world to hear, for the world to believe, and for the world to call on him who saves sinners. Because how shall they hear without a preacher? May God help us to follow this task. Let us pray. Almighty God, God of all nations, oh, how we thank you for the Great Commission. Oh, how we thank you that you still equip men to go and to preach to the ends of the earth. Oh, Lord, we thank you this evening for all the men that we are allowed to know who are in the mission field, for those who are getting ready for the ministry. Oh, Lord, show us how we can help them, how we can pray for them, what we can do in order to make their ministry successful. And I ask you, living God, send our federation ministers, awaken godly young men, that they will feel the burden to preaching the whole counsel of God, that will say, woe if I don't preach the gospel of Christ. Woe is me. Oh, Lord, help us. And we bring all of our missionaries before you this evening. Help them, strengthen them, and guide them for the glory of your name, for the good of your church, and for the blessing of the nations. In Jesus' most precious and faithful name we pray. Amen.